This is Solid Foundation Ministries with Dr. Pierre Couvert, building solid foundations through sound Bible teaching. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 6. What I want to look at this morning is the cost of compromise. We'll start in verse 24 and read down through the end of the chapter. It says, No man can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. He cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body what ye, uh, what ye shall put on. Is not life more than meat and the body more than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you by taking thought can add one cubit to his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which is today and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. This uh, passage of Scripture happens to, happens to con, uh, contain what I call my life's verse, but it's verse 33. It says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And that's really what it's about this morning. Uh, as we look through this passage, we see God's provision. We see him taking care of the birds and making sure that they've got plenty to eat. And oh, the beauty of the flowers that he gives us. And they don't even have to work at it. It just comes naturally. They just open up and that beauty comes out. You know, it asks if we can change our stature. I know some people that wish they could change their stature. They can't change that. That's the way God made them. God has clothed those flowers better than the beauty of Solomon in all of his fanciest garb. God clothes the flowers. Aren't we better than these things? As God's children, we should seek, seek something better than the things that the world seeks after. We're the children of the king of the universe. We should be seeking, first of all, God's kingdom. I think the most important thing in seeking God's kingdom is making sure that we are in it. Go with me, if you would, over to John chapter 3. And in verse 3, Jesus here is talking to a man named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, Jews, and he chides him for not knowing the things that he's telling him about here. But in verse 3 it says, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Until you have a new birth, you can't even see it. Or you can hear about it, you can have thoughts about it, you can read about it in the Bible, but you can't really understand anything about it until you've got the Spirit of God living inside, which comes at the new birth. A new birth is absolutely essential, and it's absolutely necessary if we're going to be in the kingdom of God. Go back with me to Luke chapter 13 and verse 3. I tell you, nay, but except you repent, 
you shall all likewise perish. There has to be repentance if we're going to uh, get into the kingdom of God. Now, what is repentance? Repentance means to turn from something to something. We see in the Bible where it says God repented of the evil, for example, of Nineveh. He was going to destroy Nineveh, but Nineveh repented and turned to God. And then God turned from the evil or the destruction that he was going to do on Nineveh and spared them. So that's what repentance is. So what is it that we have to repent from? Well, many preachers will stand up, I've done it myself, and say we need to repent of our sin. You can say I don't want to sin anymore, but how can you turn from all your sins when you probably don't even know what they all are? And I searched the scriptures looking for a place for where it says that, and I couldn't find it. So I asked myself, what is it we have to repent of? And I found it over in Hebrews chapter 6. It, it says we're, one of the basics of Christianity is repentance from dead works. How does every other religion, including atheism, which is a religion, by the way, teach that we get saved? They all teach that you have to do good things to be right with whatever your version of God is. But you can't get right with God through works. Go with me if you would to Ephesians chapter 2. In verse 8, it says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You see, your, your works aren't going to get you into heaven. So you've got to stop trying to do it yourself and turn to God for mercy. And when we realize that, then we look and say, what can I do? And we figure out, I can't do anything. And then what we do is we turn to Him for mercy. We turn from our own efforts and turn to Him for mercy. And when we do that, He points us to our, His Son and says, trust Him. The work He did on the cross will pay your debt if you will allow it to. Well, once you're in the kingdom of God, you need to be good citizens. that make sense? Okay, well, as Americans, shouldn't we be American, a good citizens of America? Of course we should. How about God's kingdom? Shouldn't we be good citizens? Well, look at the next verse here. It says, For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Uh, verse 9 says, Not of works for our salvation. Verse 10 says, now that you're saved, you're made a new creature in Christ, and it is expected that you do good works. It's not optional. God has foreordained that we should walk in them. And Christians, there is a judgment seat coming where we will stand before Christ and be judged for the way we lived our Christian life. And we will lose reward when we didn't follow this principle right here and do those things we're supposed to do. We won't lose our salvation, but we will lose our rewards. Look over in James chapter 1, in verse 22. It says, But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if ye be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, uh, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in, the, in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. See, we're expected to do what's right. We're supposed to do what we find in the Word of God. The perfect law of liberty is the Bible that you have laying on your lap. And I think there's something that's very important in this passage of Scripture. It says in verse 22, to be a doer of the Word. And then in verse 25, it tells us what that means. But a doer of the work. A doer of the word is one who is involved in the work of God. 
And that's good citizenship. The reason our country, America, and I suppose the Canadians might see the same thing up there, but the reason our country, America, is in the state it's in today is because Christians got uninvolved in the work of the nation. Well, let's not get uninvolved in the work of God. Then once we're in, involved in being good citizens and doing what we're supposed to do, we're supposed to build it. The plan for the construction of God's kingdom is laid out in Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 18. It says, But Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. There's the construction plans for God's kingdom. Well, first of all, we're to teach all nations the truth of Scripture. That's why we send missionaries out. That's why this small church sends out 27 missionaries. Because we can't all be everywhere, but our missionaries can. Then it says baptizing them. What does that mean? Well, once they, we teach them the truths and they accept the truth, we're to baptize them. Baptism is, has always been the entry into the church. Baptists believe that you become a member of a Baptist church through baptism. Catholics teach the same thing. Uh, Lutherans teach the same thing. It's the way you get them into the church. So that's talking about getting them into the church where they have a place of fellowship, a place of nourishment, of help, uh, a place where they can grow. And then the third part of building the kingdom is teaching them to observe all things whatsoever He has commanded us. Not just the things that we think are important. There are some things that the Bible says over and over and over again, and we can gather from the fact that the Bible says them over and over again that they're important. But how many times does God have to say something to make it important? Once should be enough. We're teaching them to observe all things whatsoever He has commanded us. With all of His power, which is all power in heaven and earth, He is with us. Well, if that's true, why don't we trust Him more? Why don't we do more things His way instead of our way? And then we're also to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. Go to Philippians chapter 3 and verse 9. Paul is speaking here and he says, And be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. We need to understand that it's His righteousness, not ours. It's not something that we have done. His righteousness comes to us by imputation. It means by His placing it in our account. Go with me, if you would, back to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, verse 20. Speaking of Abraham here, it says, He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised he was able also to perform. And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. He was fully persuaded that God was able to keep any promise he made. How many of us are fully persuaded that God's able to do that? When a trial comes into our life that we say, well, if I do what God says, I'm not going to be able to get through this trial. How many of us really believe that God is able? Have you ever thought about the promises that God had made to Abraham and then the challenges God put before him? How about the promise of Isaac being the son of promise? And just when he gets to be the age where it looks like he's about ready to do that, God says, I want you to go kill him. 
That's what he said. He said, listen, I want you to get up tomorrow morning. I want you to go out here about three days from now. You get out there. When you get to the place, I'll tell you. I want to go up on that mountain. I want you to offer him as a burnt sacrifice. But it says here that he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief. Why? He believed God could keep his promise. In Hebrews, we're told that he believed that if he had done what God had told him to do, God stopped him and they had a ram there instead, which was offered in his place, which is a picture of Christ, the sacrifice for us, by the way. It says that Abraham believed, well, listen, if I do this, and God promised me that through that son I would, I would be, uh, be a blessing to all nations, then God will raise him back from the dead if necessary to do it. That's the faith he had in God. How many of us have that kind of faith? We ought to. We have the same God Abraham did. And it is true that God could have done just what Abraham thought. So he trusted him whatever he said because of that faith, that trust in God. God put Christ's righteousness in his account. And you notice I started reading over there in Matthew. I I could have started a verse later and still got everything in, but I started in verse 24 because I wanted to point something out. It says, No man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. He cannot serve God and mammon. Now, most of you have been told that that word mammon means money. It does not. It includes money. It means self-gain, personal gain is what it means. You can't serve God and be serving your own purposes at the same time. When you serve God, you serve God. When you serve yourself, you serve yourself. You can't do them both. You you just can't serve two masters. It it doesn't work. What I want to do now is I want to take... Go with me over to 2 Peter chapter 2. I want to take a look at a man who compromised. And I want to look at what it cost him in in 2 Peter and verse 6. Now, the context here, Paul is talking about false prophets and false teachers. And he's talking about how certainly they will be judged. And then he gives... Uh, three or two or three examples here of those that were judged, and the last one we pick up on in verse six. And turning uh, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an ensample for those that after should live ungodly. So he said Sodom and Gomorrah was given as an example to those who would live ungodly in the future. He says, and he delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. The The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptation and how to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. Now that last verse says, God knows how to sort it out between those that are his and those that aren't. The godly and the ungodly. He knows how to sort it out. So who was this guy Lot? Well, first of all, go back with me to Genesis chapter 11 and verse 27. This is in a genealogy here. It says, Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah begat Abram, who's Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran begat Lot. So from that we learn that Lot is Abraham's nephew. Uh, If you know the story, when uh, Abraham went out and started traveling where God had sent him, Lot initially went with him. Now go with me, if you would, to chapter 13, verse 5. And Lot also, which went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. And the land was not able to bear them that they might dwell together, for their substance was great, so that they could not dwell together. And there was strife 
between the herdman of Abram's cattle and the herdman of Lot's cattle. And the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelled then in the land. Uh, I would like to point out here that, a, that Lot was a wealthy man. He had enough flocks to where his and Abraham's could not be in the same fields together. There just wasn't enough space for them. Verse 9, it said, uh, Abraham is speaking here. Let's start back to verse 8. Abraham said unto Lot, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between thy herdmen, my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we are brethren. Or is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. And if thou shalt go to the left hand, I will go to the right. And if thou depart to the right hand, then I will go to the left. So Abraham comes along and he says, Okay, we, we can't get along together. Not that we don't, we're not friends. There's just too much of us for the space we have. So let's separate and let's move out. He says, Lot, you take the choice. You go wherever you want. So we learn he was a rich man, as Abraham was. Then we learn also that he was a materialistic man. Verse 10, And Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zoar. And Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves one from another. We see here Lot makes a choice. He says, hmm. Over here, we got all that lush pasture along the river there. That's good for my cattle. Over here, I'm going to have to be moving a lot because, because they, there's not much pasture over there. So I have to move from this place to this place. It's a materialistic man. He was looking out. What's in it for me? What do I get out of? What do I get out of it? So he chose a place near Sodom. Go back to Second Peter chapter two. Look at verses seven and eight. And he delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Now, stop and think about that. His soul was righteous. This was a saved man. It tells us that he was bothered by the daily sin he saw. It vexed his righteous soul. It says day to day. As he went through his life on a daily basis, it bothered him to see the sin in the city he lived in. You know, he could have left. Because said, this is too wicked for me, I'm leaving. Or as we'll see in just a moment, he could have stood up and tried to do something about it. But he didn't do either. He dwelt there. Back in Genesis, this time let's go to chapter 19 and verse 1. And there came two angels to Sodom, and Lot sat in the gate of Sodom. And Lot, seeing them, rose up to meet them, and he bowed himself with his faith towards the ground. But what I want you to see in this verse is where Lot was. Lot was in the gate of the city. This indicates that Lot was a man of prominence. He was a man whose word meant something. He was a prominent businessman is what it would indicate. He could actually have been a politician and in the political structure. Some believe he was the mayor. I have no way of knowing whether he was the mayor or not. But I do know that if he sat in the gate, he was a respected man, a man with influence. There's no indication that he did anything with that influence to stop the sin of Sodom. Why not? Well, I can only speculate. But I'm speculating based on what I know from the world I live in today. It would have cost him too much financially to stand up against it. It would have cost him his lifestyle. Maybe his mansion wouldn't have been so big. Or maybe he couldn't have driven such a nice car. It would have cost him too much. So he wasn't willing to stand up. Believe me, it cost him a whole lot more than that. What did it cost him? God deliver, did deliver him 
know, God always delivers His people before judgment. So what did it cost Him? Well, look down in verse 14. And Lot went out and spake unto his sons-in-law, which married his daughters, and said, Up, get you out of this place, for the Lord uh, will destroy this city. But he seemed as one mocked unto his sons-in-law. Because he didn't live a righteous testimony. He was a righteous man, but he didn't live a righteous testimony before them. And when he came and told them this, he says he was as one mocked. They laughed at him. They said, you've got to be kidding. It's been like this forever. Now, nothing's going to change. Who is this God of yours? I've never seen him in your life before. Now why are you talking to me about him? Parents, think about that. Think about that. You have influence. Is it good or bad? So he lost, he lost his, uh, his daughters and grandchildren and sons-in-laws. Look at verse 26. But his wife looked back from behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. Remember when the angel told them to leave, said, don't look back. Just go. Don't look back. But she had such a longing for the, the ease that they had in Sodom that she couldn't take it. She turned around and looked back. She turned into a p- pillar of salt. Lost his wife. Cost him all of his wealth. That was destroyed with the city. He just left with the clothes on his back and his two youngest daughters. But it also cost him his honor. Verse 30. And Lot went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the, in the mountains and his, uh, his two daughters with him. For he feared to dwell in Zoar and dwelt in a cave. He and his two daughters. So now he became a caveman. And the firstborn said unto the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man in the earth to come unto us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, and we uh, may preserve the seed of our father. And they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went and laid with her father, and he perceived not when she laid down, nor when she arose. And it came to pass on the morrow that the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I, I, I lay yesterday night, or yesternight, rather, with my father. Let us make him drink wine this night also, also and go thou in, and lie with him, that uh, we may preserve the seed of our father. And they made their father uh, drunk with wine that night also, And the younger arose and lay with him, and he perceived not when she lay down, nor when she arose. Thus were both the daughters of life with child by their father. That's called incest, folks. But he lost his honor here. His daughters lost their honor. And the firstborn bare a son, and called his name Moad. The same is the father of the Moabites unto this day. And the younger she also bare a son, and called his name Menemi. The same is the father of the children of Ammon unto this day. Those two tribes, the Moabites and the Ammonites, were a thorn in the sides of Israel. They were enemies of Israel. They caused problem because of this man's sin. What did it cost him? More than I would want it to cost me. Now, we live in a land like, uh, like Sodom. The land is called the United States of America. It's a land like Sodom. Go to Romans chapter 1, and verse 22. Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not in God, as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to, the corru- to corruptible man, and to birds and four-legged beasts. Wherefore, God also gave them up to, un- to uncleanness, 
through the lust of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. They became worshipers of the creation instead of the Creator. Is that not America? I mean, I'm all for taking care of our land and not spoiling deliberately the, the environment and things, but they've gone overboard on it in this country. I mean, they think abortion is nothing, but boy, don't you cut down a tree. They didn't want God in their knowledge. So he gave them over to a reprobate mind, a mind that is incapable of making a right decision and seeing things as they are, a mind that does not measure up to the standard. Verse 26 says, For this cause gave God they gave them up unto vile affections, for even as their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature, and likewise also men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their heir which was meet. That's getting to be a very touchy subject today. But we live in a nation that, that justifies homosexuality as just another lifestyle. God says that he gave them over to the recompense which is meet for what they do. Do you know that there are two places where AIDS is most common with homosexuals and drug users? And often they're the same. Did you know that the average homosexual lives 30 years less long than the average non-homosexual? Unless they get AIDS. And then it's 40 years less. It's not mean to want to get somebody out of that. We shouldn't hate the people. But we should know enough to be able to show them the error of their ways and bring them out of it. You could be saving their lives. Uh, how about uh, killing their children? Abortion. I mean, what a horrible thing. What's sad is that they know it's wrong. Look in verse 32. Who knowing uh, the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 13. Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men, be strong. Four things. If we'll do those, we can fix this problem. Watch. That means pay attention to what's going on around you in this world. Pay attention to the news. Pay attention to what's going on in the political arena. Pay attention. Pay attention to your own conduct. How does your conduct influence those around you? When you're out on the job and somebody cusses, and then they look and see you standing there, do they just keep on cussing or do they say, oh, excuse me, but we should have that kind of testimony. Stand fast in the faith. Be faithful to God's precepts. And it is getting harder and harder today to do that for two reasons. One of them is, is we have so many so-called Bibles out there all saying different things that nobody knows what these principles are. My Bible says abstain from the appearance of evil. Their Bible says uh, to, to uh, keep away from uh, anything that is evil. I stay away from it if it just looks bad. It doesn't even have to be bad. It just has to look bad. But as long as it's not bad, no matter how bad it looks, they can do it. There's another reason, and that's, that's the Christian media. Now, I praise God for having the media where good Bible preachers and Bible teachers that are faithful to the Word of God can get on the radio and television and get the Word out. The sad thing is, is there's so much other stuff out there that is so bad. The point I'm making is nobody knows who to follow anymore because there are too many voices. It says quit like men. Now, we've changed the use of that word. Now quit means stop doing it. 
That's not what the word means here. It means to acquit. That means conduct yourself properly. Act like men. Say, this is wrong, and I'm going to speak out against it. If it sends me to jail, I'm going to stand against it. And then it says, be strong. First thing I think we need to remember is that our strength is not our own. Our strength is in Christ. Stand in His strength. Stand for what's right. You know, you won't have His strength if you're not standing for what's right. Stand in His strength no matter what the consequences. It requires faith. It requires having the faith that Abraham had that God is able, no matter what the circumstances, to fulfill His promises. We must never compromise on God's principles. We do so to our peril. It will cost us. Look at the world around us. More Christians are compromising with the, the more Christians are compromising with the world, the worse the world gets. It's not getting better as we compromise. These guys that say, well, we'll build a church like the, like the world wants so we can attract them in and we'll do it the world's way. They're making the world worse, not better. Got to be something different. We're losing an awful lot because of compromise, but the worst thing we're doing is we're losing our children to the world. If we don't change something, what will be left for the next generation? It's time we get our priorities right and put God's kingdom and God's righteousness first in our lives. If we do, we can trust Him to give us what we need in this life and great reward in the next. You have been listening to Solid Foundation Ministries from Lenore, North Carolina. Dr. Kubert has 35 years in the ministry as a former missionary and pastor. He is available for revivals and various conferences on missions, Bible, Baptist heritage, and the family. To find out more, go to our website, solidfoundationministries.com, or call 828-244-6505. Remember, the Christian life is not about you. It's about God receiving the glory.